Are you already planning your festive food menus? I know people who have been prepping their puddings or putting in their seafood orders or writing out their menus for months. My family tends to wing it, but whether it's a casual barbie or a roast with all the trimmings or a salad buffet and some finger food, those dishes that we share with friends and family on festive days tend to be really special. Though that tradition of feasting has varied widely over history and around the world. We're going to delve into that a bit today on Life Matters. Madeline Shanahan is a historical archaeologist turned food historian, and she wrote a book called Christmas Food and Feasting, a History. Madeline, a topic very close to my heart. Welcome to Life Matters. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, when I think of feasting, I think of the Romans and those stories about the completely over-the-top dinners. But what do historians really know about how far back this tradition of the feast goes? Look, I think it's fair to say that feasting is so uh, central to human um, identity and to our story that it's really part of our evolution. Um, It goes back to millennia. And really what it was associated with was the seasonal production of food. In in um, 2023, it's very hard for us to understand just how seasonal food was in the past before um, refrigeration and uh, food, you know, could be stored. So yeah, there was that idea of of abundant times of year, wasn't there? And then you you waited for everything to be fat and juicy before you had a feast. Well, exactly. So for hunter-gatherers, there were times when game um, was more plentiful. Um, Once we shifted to agriculture, there were times of harvest um, and the slaughter of animals. And so this really was a time to come for people to come together and to celebrate through food and through the excess of food um, and to enjoy that sense of... um, of being part of a community. That excess thing is interesting though, Madeline, isn't it? Because it sounds like it's about demarcating social status as well as just having a lovely time. I think it is about demarcating social status. Part of it is about um, celebrating the labour, was about celebrating the labour of food production in the past. So, you know, particularly in the medieval feudal world, um, peasants laboured together, there was a lot of work involved in this. So there was an expectation that the feudal lords would reward them with... um, hospitality and there is incredible records of the number of beasts that were slaughtered and the alcohol that was drunk. Um, But within that, there is that display of power. Um, One person has the opportunity to um, host and to be hospitable, um, but it's really about that labour dynamic. Well, yes, and and I was reading about how uh, in your work you look at the the role of dried fruits and and what Mm. that meant. Dried fruits were, you know, a real, it's hard again for us to see this now, but were a real luxury item in the medieval world. Um, and so these were, you know, imported goods from the, from the East, along with spices that were really important celebratory foods. And it's why this, they play such a role in some of our most iconic Christmas recipes. But I mean, even as a child in Australia, I remember how much my grandmother loved glacé fruits at Christmas. So it's it's something that we've kept with us. I know. I remember just feeling a bit embarrassed at not liking mince pies. Everyone seemed to think they were <laughs> so important and amazing. It's like, oh, it's full of mixed peel. But Madeline, do you think our treat foods might change in future Christmases? Because, I mean, spices and sugar used to be prized because they weren't eaten every day and now they're they're everywhere. Do you think we might shift to something a little more exotic? Well, it's hard to know. One of the things I've been doing a bit more research on and thinking about in my own life is really that um, 
the history of feasting really needed to be seen in relation to also the history of fasting. So certainly in the medieval world, um, the calendar was uh, was divided into these periods where there was excess when you feasted, but these periods of fast in between, um, which made the feasts all the more special um, because you had restraint. Whereas I think in the 21st century, we're living in a time where there's such abundance, you know, fresh meat is readily available at all times, alcohol is readily available at all times. And so to a degree, the meaning of excess um, is lost and I think it means we sort of almost have to up the ante more <laughs> more and more. Yeah. Oh, my God. A medieval peasant with a, this lunch wrapped in a crust of bread would just be aghast at our waxing and waning feast across the year, wouldn't they? Yeah. And, I mean, imagine coming into a hall and seeing a huge beast when you don't normally eat fresh meat. You know, it would have been extraordinary. And so I think in terms of how feasts might change, it's important that we find ways to make sure that they still have meaning and that they still um, connect us to a story and to rituals that are important to us. Um, I think that's central. That's why I love those families where everybody makes a special dish and it's something they've laboured over and it has a story connected to it. Maybe it's something they've brought from their family background and then everybody brings it together in the table. Uh, we're t- speaking today with Madeline Shanahan, who's a, an historical archaeologist turned food historian. Her book's called Christmas Food and Feasting, A History. Think about how feasting traditions have changed, Madeline, when the European cold country Christmas dinner came to Australia. How long did it take people to think that's that's not working for us here? Oh, longer than you might think. <laughs> um, so what we see in the accounts of um, the very early colony is even on the first fleet, the officers were trying to make Christmas puddings and there's accounts of them making them on that, on that last Christmas before they landed um, on the 26th of January. Um, in those early years, there was such a want of food that they couldn't continue to make um, those puddings, any food was a celebration. Um, there's a great record of a big a 26-pound cabbage being sent from Parramatta to Sydney um, and a, a turtle being sent from Lord Howe Island. Um, so they just found any food they could. Um, over time, though, once there was more money in the colony um, from the early first decade of the 19th century, really, we see colonial Australians really putting a lot of emphasis on to trying to make Christmas puddings and to maintain. They use the words keeping Christmas in the oh. way that they thought they should. That's as the ni- as the, sorry, as the 19th century progresses, though, we see them start to play with the idea of Christmas in Australia and, and they talk a lot about how unsuitable this winter meal is, really, and so they start... There's wonderful postcards showing them um, partying on Manly Beach and going out for picnics, but they always take the plum pudding with them. <laughs> Great. Well, we talked about the labour that went into producing these amazing feasts. Did people start to also... Were there the first stirrings of unrest in the 19th and 20th centuries about who was slaving over the hot ovens? Well, I think that comes a little later. There's a wonderful tradition. I'm jumping away from Australia for a minute. Um, I lived in Ireland for many years. My husband's Irish. And um, there's a wonderful tradition there called Nolignaban, which is means Little Women's Christmas. And that's on the 6th of January when um, it's a day for women to rest because they've had such a busy period and everyone has to wait on them and um, prepare all the food. So one I think, day. <laughs> yeah. Great. They get one day. Yeah. <laughs> January the 6th. I'm marking that in my calendar now. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about seafood because Mm. I I was fascinated to see that it used to grace our festive tables back in the 15th century or so and then it kind of Mm. went out and in again. What happened? Well, I mean, and I've really focused in my book on um, the tradition of uh, Christmas food in Britain um, and places that they took it um, throughout the empire. But um, 
you know, throughout much of Europe, particularly Catholic Europe, uh, seafood maintains its significance. Um, during the Reformation in Britain, uh, seafood kind of lost some of its role in Christmas. And this was really because traditionally Advent had been a very important fast, um, so you couldn't eat meat. Um, so there were seafood traditions. And, and like I said, many countries throughout Europe, particularly um, Italy and other more Catholic places in Europe, maintain those traditions. Um, but the meat became really central to the British Christmas um, in the aftermath of the Reformation, and that's really what colonial Australians inherited. Um, so the biggest changes we start to see in the Australian Christmas really come about in the late 19th century when Australians started really embracing tropical fruit, mangoes in particular, and giving boxes of them to each other. Um, seafood really became a big part of the Australian Christmas uh, in the post-war period when we had a lot of migrants coming from Mediterranean countries and bringing their traditions of seafood at Christmas with them. There's a wonderful feast in southern Italy called the Feast of the Seven Fishes, which is marked on, on Christmas Eve where you eat seven different fish dishes. And, and these seem to have had a big impact on Australian uh, Christmas traditions in the later 20th century. Interesting. I was a bit startled too when you mentioned mangoes. I grew up in regional Australia. I don't think I saw a mango until my late teens, but I was fascinated to read that they had been a big part of uh, Christmas traditions in the 20th century, early 20th century in Australia. Yeah, there's even some wonderful accounts from the um, arcades of Sydney and Melbourne of um, boxes of mangoes being sent down from Queensland. Like in the first decade of the, of the 20th century, you read some accounts that are a little bit earlier, but really it was once the fruit industry started having the distribution networks. But it's there are very early references to just how much it was about Australians embracing summer. It, it was an important period in Australian history too because it's around the time that Australia federated and so Australians were becoming a little bit more aware of their season and their place and wanting to find ways to celebrate summer and engage with it more meaningfully. Mm, I love the, the quote from a columnist in 1945 <laughs> for the Rockhampton Morning Bulletin. If we get another Christmas box that includes mangoes, pineapples or a watermelon, I'll scream. <laughs> it just sounds like such a 21st century complaint. Oh, there's this abundance of tropical fruit. I mean, are we getting better at, at eating local and seasonal around Christmas time, do you think, Madeline? I think we are. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, my family tend to still maintain certain traditions. Like we, we do always have a Christmas pudding, but um, we're making sure that we embrace um, the beautiful fruit, I think, is an iconic part of Christmas. We, we went after COVID and stuff. We hadn't been back to Ireland for some time and we took our sons back to Dublin for their first Christmas in winter. And, and they loved it. It was beautiful. It snowed. But the thing they said to me, it didn't really smell like Christmas. And it was because they'd really grown up with that sort of sweaty pine needle and an overripe mango as, <laughs> as really a big part of the festival for them. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah. I, the smell of baking grass outside uh, and, yeah, cold chicken inside. That's my <laughs> summer Christmas from Australia. Well, and Madeline, you mentioned, you know, people are changing the way they think about some of the ethical issues around food, mm. I guess, food miles. Are people cutting back on meat? Do you think we might see that in the future? Look, I think this is the challenge in terms of looking at the role of feasts. Ultimately, feasts do need to be about celebration. They need to be fun. They need to be about us coming together and unwinding and relaxing together. And I think, you know, um, high calorific foods like meat and sugar and, alco and, and alcohol have always been, have, have truly always been a part of, of that tradition of feasting. So obviously that can shift and we can look at different ways to celebrate through food. But I think, like I said, it's really important that we don't look at at Christmas is the problem when we look at consumption. I, I think what would be a healthier, more sustainable kind of food practice is for us to look at times where we're not 
eating to excess and then times where we're celebrating. Um, And if we look at sort of earlier calendars about how much there were periods of restraint and then periods of indulgence, I think that's what um, I hope to see develop. I don't know that it will. It's a bit of a work in progress, isn't it? Yes. Just finally, Madeline, I mean, we, we have become so much more diverse in the last few decades and, and certainly in the last century. Can we say what is a distinctly Australian spread now? I mean, I noticed on the news today that people are hunting up yabbies because they're cheaper than other forms of seafood. What are your thoughts about what things might look like in the future? I think the things that have really begun to define the Australian Christmas are, we, you know, we talked about the importance of our fruit and the beautiful produce we have. We've talked about seafood. That's definitely reflecting um, the increasing diversity in post, from post-war period on. I think we're going to continue to see embracing um, flavours uh, from around the world and new dishes as we start to connect um, with, you know, people coming to Australia and bringing their traditions with them. So I don't really have an answer in terms of the direction it heads on. I I think the wonderful thing about Christmas is that it's woven together many periods of history, many cultures, and it can continue to do that. So I think one of the really beautiful things about the Australian Christmas table is it's kind of a process of adding to it. So we add prawns and we add mango, but we don't necessarily take things away. And it's just this feast that keeps evolving and getting richer and richer. Yep, the excess has stayed constant for the last (laughs) few centuries, that's for sure. Madeline, it's been fascinating chatting with you. Thanks so much for sharing your experience with us on Life Matters today. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Madeline Shanahan, historical archaeologist turned food historian, and her book's called Christmas Food and Feasting, A History. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.